Welcome to the Youth Fusion Expert Series. This part of the series focuses specifically on outer space. The Expert Series is a series where we engage with leaders and experts in the fields of nuclear disarmament, peace and security, and sustainable development. We hope to inspire you by those who are working towards a fairer and more peaceful future for all. My name is Russell Burrell, and today we have with us a guest experienced in space security and issues surrounding outer space. Paul Meyer comes to us with 35 years of experience with the Canadian Foreign Service, where he was Canada's ambassador and permanent representative to the United Nations and to the Conference on Disarmament in Geneva, Switzerland from 2003 to 2007. He is an adjunct professor of international studies at Simon Fraser University and chair of the Canadian Pugwash Group. In 2020, he contributed a great deal to the space section of the Disarmament Handbook, Our Common Future, published in partnership with the Parliamentarians for Nuclear Nonproliferation and Disarmament, the World Future Council, the Interparliamentary Union, and the Geneva Center for Security Policy. He's here with us today to speak about issues regarding outer space, including the placement of weapons in outer space, conflict, and new challenges that different actors and global events have brought to outer space. So what got you interested in space, if I may start like that? Well, you know, I, I think uh, the uh, perhaps some of the usual things, you know, as a kid, you know, being impressed with uh, the constellations, the starry nights, uh, uh, begging the parents to be allowed to sleep out in the backyard, so to take that in, shooting stars, and then uh, the, uh, of course, uh, the uh, sci-fi books and the uh, television shows uh, that uh, projected into space. So, so I, I guess there's a, a predisposition there, but uh, uh, professionally, it, it came uh, later in my career as a, as a diplomat. Uh, uh, the growing uh, use of space and uh, the recognition that um, global society uh, draws such immense benefits from the relatively benign environment of outer space. And you know, what a, a tragedy that would be if um, this uh, special global commons, uh, as designated under international law, um, was reduced to just another kind of battleground. Um, so uh, I think the conflict prevention element uh, teamed up with um, uh, a growing understanding and appreciation of uh, the uh, uses from space-enabled uh, space services and how they could, uh, say, contribute a lot to uh, global well-being uh, if allowed to continue uh, unmolested. Yeah, especially now when, you know, we rely on everything um, our payment systems and everything come from outer space. Um, but you mentioned your your um, your career sort of as a as a diplomat. What led you to the Canadian Foreign Service? I mean, I'm sure like as a kid, you never thought, oh, this is exactly what I want to be whenever I, you know, whenever I get older. Was it something that came to you as a kid, maybe or as a teenager or as you kind of came up? Yeah, I'm um, not sure I could put a, a, a finger on a direct connection, but I, I did. I was I was a keen on maps as a kid. I'd like to draw them and you know, look at them. So I suppose you could say that was a harbinger of uh, wanting a, an international career. But um, 
in essence, I was just uh, coming up to the end of my bachelor's degree as a political science major at the University of Toronto, had taken some uh, international relations courses, uh, quite like them, and uh, uh, recognized that I, I would like to be able to continue to study some of these uh, questions, but at the same time, um, earn a, my livelihood. Uh, and at that time, the Foreign Service was one of the few uh, areas where you could um, have an international career. And uh, there was, at the time, uh, an annual sort of uh, examination um, uh, that you could sit for. And if you did well enough on it, uh, you could be called for an interview. Um, and so, so I, I did that. And as I like to point out to, uh, to students, um, I mean, the first time I, I got to the interview stage, but I wasn't successful beyond that. But the next year I went back and uh, try, try again. And uh, that time I did uh, get a job offer and that um, set me off on, uh, I think, quite a satisfying uh, career trajectory that time just flew by. And uh, in our rotational foreign service, which means that the positions are filled both at headquarters in the capital, but also um, at missions abroad, you know, every few years, um, it's uh, something fresh. It's a new, uh, new job in a way. Uh, well, so uh, that uh, built-in variety uh, definitely appealed to me. Uh, so that's uh, uh, helped, uh, I sort of keep it all uh, interesting for me over what ended up to be a 35-year career. Yeah, that it's certainly an impressive career. And how did that lead you to being uh, an ambassador to the United Nations? Well, that was my last diplomatic uh, appointment, and, and I guess uh, in some ways uh, the uh, apogee of my career. And uh, uh, I, uh, I found it very stimulating that uh, the, the ambassador to the UN and the Conference on Disarmament in, in Geneva, there's a vast array of uh, uh, UN agencies, specialized agencies that are sort of distinct from the UN. And uh, there was um, a wide spectrum of uh, global issues to contend with, everything from uh, health uh, to uh, human rights, uh, to migration, to disarmament. So uh, I, uh, I found that too. Um, uh, quite uh, engaging and a sense that uh, you're getting insights into a variety of activity. Activity, which I, I should say, I, I feel that um, get, really gets covered by the, the global uh, media. And uh, that I think is unfortunate because a lot of good work that gets uh, undertaken under the uh, UN auspices and those of other international organizations. And uh, yet uh, the media tends to zero in on uh, the political bickering that goes on at the UN headquarters or uh, they salivate over you know, some sort of corruption scandal that they can pin on, on a UN official. Um, and uh, if you actually have the chance to spend time you know, with some of these very dedicated international civil servants, um, you're extremely impressed by their, uh, their dedication and, and the uh, progress that they're making in, uh, combating uh, many of the ills of, of the world. Uh, so uh, that was, uh, say, a kind of pinnacle of, of, of my career, but I did find the time there 
quite interesting, not to say there weren't frustrations and, and the sort of deadlock in the conference on disarmament uh, was prominent among them. This is the, ostensibly the UN's uh, sole negotiating form for multilateral arms control and disarmament. But uh, the last thing it produced uh, was the, the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty back in 1996. And it hasn't been able to agree even on a program of work officially uh, ever since then. Um, and uh, PEROS, or the Prevention of Arms Race in Outer Space, was one of the standing uh, items um, on the CD's agenda. But here again, uh, one wasn't, we weren't able to succeed in sort of establishing a, what's called a subsidiary body that could actually undertake um, uh, work on this subject over an extended time and uh, so it became you know simply a, a situation where periodically there was an opportunity for someone to make a statement in the plenary but no real um process uh that could be sustained to develop uh, some sort of agreement or arrangement and there were different views as to what's the prefer preferable uh, approach to take uh, whether it should be exclusively only uh, legal, international legal instruments that should be considered, or whether uh, it was appropriate to look at politically, so-called politically binding measures uh, that are short of uh, legally binding. So uh, among the 65 member states of uh, the conference, uh, there were some sharply different positions on that. So um, it's, uh, I, it's an unfortunate real, uh, situation, I think, uh, partly through an extreme uh, application of consensus rule for decision making, basically gave every member a de facto veto over any, any decision, uh, procedurally, as well as substantive. Uh, so uh, that uh, is discouraging. I mean, maybe later we can talk about you know, the, the, the newest process, which has been able to take this issue outside of the uh, CDs uh, confines, in which I, I, I hope may uh, yield something more productive. Mm -hmm. That's good. And we are going to come back a little bit to international law and the Outer Space Treaty in a little bit, because I know you have some very, you have a pretty good idea for kind of facilitating the band, getting um, getting not just nuclear weapons, but conventional weapons sort of out of the, the space sphere too. But I would like to uh, continue a little bit. So as Canada's ambassador to the UN, and now as an, as an uh, associate professor at Simon Fraser University um, in international relations, correct? I'm the uh, an adjunct professor, so um, I'm, uh, they're, they're not like a full-time faculty member, but I, I do very much appreciate the uh, opportunity to teach a course, and I teach it, uh, it's called Inside Diplomacy, a Practitioner's Perspective, uh, which as the title suggests, I, I try to bring uh, the, uh, the knowledge and experience uh, of my uh, diplomatic career into the classroom and to try to uh, uh, provide some insights uh, for the students into how the international system actually works in practice, uh, uh, which uh, at times may be a, a little different than uh, what they read about in the textbook. Yeah, because um, that's what I was going to ask you is how how is it different from how we read about it in the textbook? Because I know myself, I'm an 
international security student, and we read a lot about theory, realism, liberalism, neorealism, con constructivism, and everything else. How how does that how does that translate from the classroom into the actual diplomatic world, the international um, international processes, and things like that? Or does it contribute at all? Does it really does it kind of have some sort of uh, connection or is it slightly apart from what the reality is? I mean, both areas, uh, I would say uh, practical work and, and, and theoretical work have their value, um, but uh, there's a gap uh, between them. And uh, say, uh, I mean, you, you, you mentioned the main schools of uh, IR theory, uh, but I suggest to you that you know, 95 percent of the working diplomats uh, probably would be ignorant of, of those and uh, would be very unlikely to pick up an academic journal in search of some enlightenment. Uh, uh, so uh, I think one has to be a little realistic that uh, uh, the, the things don't translate necessarily into the series. And uh, I think uh, in the, in, in the practice would, uh, would uh, point out that uh, factors that don't, aren't readily captured uh, in uh, an academic construct or theoretical construct are actually uh, the things that often are decisive uh, in, uh, uh, in uh, Making progress, or in uh, in uh, just the the day to day uh, interaction between states uh, in the forum. Yeah, and but from your experience as you know in the conference on disarmament and as an ambassador to the UN, what is the most concerning? What is the domain of most concern regarding nuclear weapons, the spread of nuclear weapons, conventional weapons, and other conflicts? I mean, there's unfortunately no shortage of uh, issues that are, are disconcerting, and uh, the current trends, uh, unfortunately, have been more in a negative direction than a positive direction. And the dismantlement of some of the key arms control accords, uh, the uh, return of aggressive war in Europe after about 75 years of relative uh, respect for that key principle of the uh, of the inviolability of sovereign states, um, uh, the uh, rather blatant uh, engaging in uh, nuclear threats, um, highly irresponsible. Uh, so uh, those are, are, are particularly problematic. And, uh, and it's given the just vast devastating potential of nuclear weapons, uh, they, uh, their, their control, um, their, uh, the effort to ensure that they are never used again is, is pretty pretty central that we're mm -hmm. facing uh, countervailing pressures right now too that make that uh, make that difficult. Um, you know, similarly, uh, conventional arms control uh, has been allowed to sort of uh, break down, um, uh, and uh, we are currently uh, trying to hold the line of avoiding. Uh, armed conflicts spreading into new environments. And, and two of them, which I've been engaged with for a few years now, are cyberspace and outer space. Uh, and again, um, one hopes that uh, 
conflict can either be prevented or mitigated, at least uh, in these areas, uh, given how central they are for, uh, dare I say, kind of civilian life and uh, the achievement of, of uh, certain certain goals uh, going, uh, going forward. And what are the issues that are most pertinent regarding outer space right now? Yeah, I think uh, it's uh, some that are challenging, uh, let's say the special status, um, which was uh, granted in the Outer Space Treaty in 1967, in which was, you know, Outer Space was a, a global commons where all states could uh, uh, claim uh, national appropriation or, or, uh, or make a sov sovereignty claim there, uh, that it was there, uh, the use of Outer Space was for the benefit and in the interest of all countries. It's right there from, uh, from the treaty text. And uh, that was to be for peaceful purposes. Uh, now, over time, that peaceful purposes were sort of interpreted via state practice, not to exclude military uh, activity in outer space, but to um, uh, suggest that offensive, aggressive military action would uh, be uh, unacceptable. And so that's um, a kind of area uh, that has has withstood um, many decades um, uh, until just the last few years where we had um, some leading space powers uh, engaging in increasingly bellicose rhetoric. Uh, we've had uh, uh, the global common status contested. Uh, we've had uh, uh, one administration uh, actually characterize outer space as a war fighting domain. Um, uh, and developed a, a separate uh, space force, um, which as often happens, then gets emulated by other militaries. Uh, so, uh, and we've had the development of so-called counter space capabilities. So these are um, anti-satellite weapon systems of one sort or the other. And we've had um, over the last 15 years, four um, active tests in which, uh, uh, a target satellite was destroyed, uh, uh, creating um, more or less debris. Uh, and of course, uh, space debris is already an existing hazard for uh, safe operations of satellites. So uh, those are uh, disturbing trends. And uh, I think it uh, behooves us all to re-energize um, our uh, diplomatic efforts uh, to try to uh, prevent the kind of conflict uh, that uh, could readily emerge uh, if there's not a greater sense of, of restraint and responsibility on the part of uh, major space powers. That's right. And, you know, we've mentioned, or you mentioned several times about these major space powers, but when we talk about outer space, there are, are obviously more than just the global powers. We also have other stakeholders, who are the stakeholders that are really important when we talk about outer space? Yeah, well, one of the important developments of literally just over the last few years has been uh, the increasing role played by the private sector in, uh, in launching of satellites. Uh, I've seen some suggestion that uh, about a third of the uh, 5,000 plus active satellites in orbit today um, belong to um, uh, Elon Musk, this uh, Starlink and uh, SpaceX uh, companies. Um, so that's, uh, I think, uh, 
a significant development, which could, uh, I hope, um, be utilized to uh, have counter pressure on governments that might be inclined to engage in what I would call irresponsible space uh, behavior. And as, as you know, too, there are a number of uh, middle and even small, smaller um, states that now own or operate uh, satellites. Uh, I think the figures are somewhere like 60, 65, um, they're in that, that category. And uh, that has the effect of expanding um, what I term the stakeholder community for uh, uh, peace in outer space. And uh, uh, as a result, uh, there, they should be voices that can be raised uh, to call for responsible policies uh, by the governments that go forward. And I think one of the uh, uh, near-term challenges would be to find the right channels for uh, conveying the views and, and concerns of uh, those other stakeholders into intergovernmental processes, which are by definition uh, state-centric. And uh, I think that's something we need to work on. I've watched a couple of your previous interviews. You mentioned in an interview from about a year ago that you expected there to be um, a little more enthusiasm whenever the Outer Space Treaty sort of had its 50th anniversary, why do you think that there wasn't the enthusiasm that there was? Because the stakeholder that is the state is currently focusing a lot on the negative aspects and the conflict aspects of outer space. You know, like you mentioned, the Space Force and it being outer space being termed as a warfighting domain. I mean, that sort of does go that goes in contrast to the language of the outer space treaty. So, um, oh, it, what do you uh, think that is? Yeah, well, you know, the, there are political changes, and I guess I, I should uh, flag that this um, uh, detrimental characterization of outer space as a more fighting domain and its establishment of this separate space force and uh, this very critical uh, rhetoric uh, against other space uh, powers. Um, all originated during the Trump administration. And uh, the uh, administration of Joe Biden uh, has moderated uh, those views. They've, they've um, kept the Space Force on, uh, but uh, their uh, rhetoric is uh, now that uh, conflict in space uh, is not inevitable and should be uh, prevented. And in that way, uh, they're taking, a, uh, I would say, a more constructive stance. Uh, uh, they've made the decision back in, in April uh, of a unilateral uh, declaration that they would not um, engage in uh, testing of destructive uh, anti-satellite weapons, uh, or at least direct ascent at anti-satellite uh, missiles, uh, which uh, was again a, a positive gesture and uh, the others may want to emulate that because what we definitely need is uh, exercises and, and some self-restraint uh, self uh, mm -hmm. going forward. And how can international institutions work to negate that negative impact and that sort of conflictive construction across all parties um, that are involved? Because there are several spacefaring powers at the moment, 
and how can how can uh, how can international institutions work to build a more inclusive atmosphere and a more peaceful atmosphere regarding outer space? To respond to, to the question, I, th I think there are a variety of channels uh, that could be used. Um, you know, I mentioned in a sense my disappointment that uh, the 111 states parties to the Outer Space Treaty did not uh, make some effort to uh, uh, to celebrate its 50th anniversary uh, back in uh, 2017. Um, and uh, I sort of noted that uh, in addition to the features of that treaty, um, which I think have been very uh, constructive. I mean, just this uh, prohibition on national uh, appropriation uh, and claims of sovereignty, um, that's a remarkable conflict prevention measure. I mean, just think of all the wars uh, that have been started down here on earth because of territorial disputes or clashes of sovereign claims. So I, 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 I take my hat off to the founder the founding drafters of that, so negotiators to sort of uh, put that in. And there's also specific uh, prohibition on uh, weapons of mass destruction in orbit, on any kind of militarization of the moon or other celestial bodies. So I, I think um, on all, uh, it's also uh, very cooperative uh, in spirit. It recognizes that uh, Activity in space should be, uh, as the treaty noted, for the benefit and the interest of all countries, and uh, that there should be um, those countries engaged in in uh, exploration uh, you know, should be ready to share their information with the scientific uh, community and with uh, the UN Secretary General, and that it should be widely distributed. So, um, the one sort of um, flaw, in a way, in the All Space Treaty as a very early multilateral tree is it didn't put into place follow-up mechanism. Um, and these are uh, really the norm these days, any kind of multilateral agreement usually has an, an annual, maybe something like a biannual uh, meeting of the state's parties, you know, which only makes sense. You know, things develop there uh, are events. And uh, so periodically um, you want to have all the state's parties who in a sense are the owners of the, uh, treaty uh, to get together uh, to review that. But there was actually no provision for that in the treaty. So, you know, literally, we've gone over 50 years without ever having a meeting of the state's parties of the Outer Space Treaty. And, and I thought that was um, uh, you know, highly un unfortunate, particularly since the 50th anniversary occurred at the time when geopolitical tensions were ramping up, including, you know, the development of uh, of uh, counter space capabilities. So uh, it seemed to be uh, really timely to try to draw attention again to the value of the outer space tree and think, you know, does it need to be supplemented in some way you know, to, to strengthen it? Now, part of the problem is the concept of depository governments, which are, are basically uh, uh, those kind of uh, act as stewards of the treaty. These days, it's often the UN Secretary General, which is fine uh, and appropriate for universal treaties. But back then, it was um, the leading space powers of uh, the US, uh, the UK, and uh, the Soviet Union. Um, and unfortunately, you know, these, these are three that are currently in, into a lot of uh, conflict with each other, not to mention uh, China's uh, role. So uh, they didn't pick up on this. Um, I, I and some others uh, 
try to lobby other um, governments, including middle powers that had certain capabilities uh, to offer to convene such a, a meeting. Uh, but it hasn't happened. And in my mind, it's way overdue and, and could uh, indeed serve as a way of reminding states of the huge benefits they get from uh, the space environment not being under man-made threat. I mean, there are enough natural hazards to operating in space, but if uh, you don't want to add to those uh, you know, deliberate uh, 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 hostile activity and destructive activity coming from, uh, from other states and entities. So I still think, you know, that could be a way of raising the profile of, of the treaty. Um, uh, and I think it, it's a role for some NGOs, frankly, in, in, in this. Uh, one of the areas of the parliamentary handbook um, chapter, um, which I was you know, asked to advise on, I drew that out because, you know, we, we have to appreciate what we have in terms of international law that's offering restraint. So, I mean, that's an existing uh, treaty. Um, I come up with some other ideas connected with it. Um, I mentioned earlier that there's been this long-standing debate between states that want to have uh, any um, security um, commitments uh, done in uh, international treaties, international agreements. And there are others um, that argue, uh, no, that's too cumbersome, it takes too long, uh, uh, technological developments could uh, uh, pass uh, and make them relevant. So let's just have political arrangements. But of course, part of the problem is political arrangements is that they, there's no uh, commitment beyond the administration that makes them to honor them going uh, forward. Uh, and uh, so one approach to try to bridge that gap was uh, suggested doing an optional protocol to the Outer Space Treaty. And uh, that's a legal instrument but it's one that only uh, those states that um, want to sign up to it um, do so. It's not, it's optional as the name goes, but it would be a way of maybe reinforcing something like the extending the current ban on weapons of mass destruction in orbit to include all weapons um, in, in outer space. And it would have the benefit of not having to reopen the underlying treaty, uh, which some fear, you know, could lead to a backsliding. Uh, so uh, that's, I just throw that out as, as one example of, of a legal measure that you know, could be uh, entertained. You know, another would be to try to uh, fill this gap with the lack of uh, institutional process for the treaty by uh, specifying that it would be an annual biannual um, conference in the state's parties. But there's also um, a new UN process uh, again, uh, probably long overdue, um, that uh, was able to be uh, achieved uh, by, in a sense, taking the Paros issue out of the gridlock CD and using the General Assembly of the United Nations, which doesn't have uh, a consensus uh, decision-making, uh, to set up um, what's called an open-ended working group on reducing space threats. And uh, that's... Uh, that new body, which has a two-year term, uh, had its first uh, substantive meeting in May of this year. There's another one due in September. And uh, it's looking at, um, at norms uh, 
factory full title is reducing space threats through uh, norms, uh, uh, principles of responsible behaviors. Uh, and uh, it uh, you know, potentially could be uh, a basis for uh, developing uh, some uh, common ground in terms of measures of restraint, uh, confidence building measures that could uh, help uh, reverse uh, this uh, detrimental uh, trend that I mentioned. Yeah, I've watched a couple of the uh, of the open-ended working group meetings and listened to them. And I was really impressed on how they tried to handle it, especially through other lenses such as you know human rights and human security as concepts through which they could bridge some of those more open gaps in you know not only space security but keeping space for the for peaceful uses rather than putting weapons in space you know because like you said earlier the prevention of space debris is is a really it's probably the most talked about thing out of all of the meetings that i've watched space debris is the top of the list and when i was watching the uh, the open-ended working groups that came up a lot especially through those other through those other uh lenses and frameworks whenever we you know um human rights human sort of um i'm sorry i can't remember the word but yeah, the, the, the human security paradigm, I think, is a very appropriate yeah. one because it reminds uh, uh, all that the services that we get from space um, are increasingly important for human security and human well-being. Uh, uh, it could be extremely detrimental if, if uh, infrastructure, which depends on uh, satellite processes, something called precision navigation timing signals, uh, that uh, uh, all sorts of financial, shipping, transportation, other activities uh, would be jeopardized uh, if those uh, were, uh, uh, were damaged or destroyed or, or uh, simply blocked. Uh, and uh, that's why I think it is uh, helpful, uh, even if we're talking about outer space security, not to get trapped in the I think artificial limit to this only uh, is a significant for states and mm -hmm. state um, concepts. Um, but uh, to say, you know, this has detrimental, potentially great detrimental impact on uh, human society and, and individuals. Um, and therefore, they have every right uh, to speak up in favor of uh, preventing uh, conflict uh, in this space. That's right, especially since, you know, it's not only governments and businesses, private sector entities that have a stake in space. It's literally every human being that walks the earth, especially now. Um, and um, so, yeah, protecting a lot of that is, should be priority one. I've also been watching the COPUS meetings. Yes. And I don't know. If I should have, I haven't gotten, but maybe to meeting number two, no, probably like the fifth, the fifth session. And it's mostly like the political back and forth, which seems really unconstructive. 
as far as trying to get anything accomplished. Um, there's a lot of talk about the working groups within COCOAS, the, the scientific working group and the legal working group, but like layered under and in between all of that is a lot of stuff related to, of course, Ukraine. And more, more, there's a lot of focus on conflict. And it just doesn't seem like if, it doesn't seem like states are very concerned at the moment about focusing on anything other than conflict. Yeah, I, uh, I think that's why though it's, it's important to mobilize the stakeholders to speak up, call out uh, irresponsible behavior by, by states. So, you know, I'm, I'm a, a fellow of the Elder Space Institute, which is a, a network of uh, space uh, experts and uh, uh, institutes uh, has uh, released two, I think, particularly uh, significant open letters. Uh, one was uh, calling for uh, a ban on destructive anti-satellite testing, um, which uh, has found resonance among uh, uh, many. And the second um, was uh, calling for the negotiation of some multilateral framework to govern the utilization of space resources, which uh, is, as the technology develops, you know, becoming uh, now a more feasible uh, prospect rather in the future. And uh, here again, there's been some progress, uh, I think, as a result of that advocacy. And the legal subcommittee of Copius um, at the... Uh, last meeting, uh, agreed uh, uh, a working group to uh, look at possible models uh, of uh, legal models to govern the exploration of space resources. And there's a kind of five-year mandate for this uh, working group uh, going forward. So, uh, well, it is subject to the same kind of consensus of decision-making. I think uh, that at least uh, uh, shows uh, a sense that uh, here is an area that uh, early action to develop common frameworks and standards could be very beneficial. Um, and even though uh, Copius is sort of uh, not supposed to engage in uh, issues of security, uh, clearly it would also meet this conflict prevention uh, aim if they could. Uh, because once again, some of the conflict we see down on Earth is a function of uh, competition for scarce resources. You know, mm -hmm. could also appear. So, um, yeah, um, cautiously optimistic that both that uh, process and the uh, legal permit for working group will be able to uh, forge uh, some common understandings and some uh, cooperative measures uh, that ideally can uh, help. Uh, the situation and, uh, and uh, tone down some of the uh, uh, bellicose uh, rhetoric that uh, we have. Yeah, it actually like the some of it sort of reminds me a little bit of the story of Epidemnus and um, the history of the Peloponnesian War because you know it's like every time there's always something already going on and then the opposing sides want to have negotiations after the fact, after everything's already started and it just leads to the some sort of spiral 
and getting further and further into the security dilemma and game theory sort of showing its face and and getting past all of that um like the deterrence mindset and the security dilemma if if international institutions could do something about it and promote fewer fewer conflicts and if there was more conversation um like what you were just talking about with copus and focusing on conflict prevention that would be do you think that would be that is a really good start to get past that sort of mode of conflict thinking well uh, nothing ventured nothing gained i, I think uh, at least uh, uh, stakeholders should be supportive of processes that uh, aspire to trying to uh, uh, prevent conflict and uh, promote uh, cooperation, international cooperation. We, we've had some uh, stellar, if I can pardon the pun, uh, examples of, of this, you know, in terms of uh, uh, international collaboration on, uh, on uh, the International Space Station, on uh, uh, space um, uh, astronomy and uh, related uh, measures. So um, it's a great. Um, area for collaboration uh, and there are many that are very desirous of, of, of uh, engaging so you know all the more uh, it would be a pity if uh, this kind of cooperation gets eclipsed by conflict confrontation yeah it would it would um and have there been any sort of um have there has there been anything proposed by anybody in the past I don't know, 15 to 20 years that kind of is geared more towards norm setting or at least international law to kind of get more, more clarity and a more rigid structure for keeping space for peaceful purposes. Yeah, there have been a variety of diplomatic initiatives, I think largely spurred uh, by the uh, recommencement of destructive anti-satellite tests, frankly. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and uh, they, uh, for various reasons, have not uh, really made much progress. Uh, you had China and Russia with uh, uh, their treaty uh, to prevent the placement of weapons in outer space and then the threat and use of force against outer space objects, rather known by its acronym PPWT, which was of course uh, a legal instrument, but uh, it was uh, sharply criticized uh, by uh, the United States for not having verification provisions, for uh, not having a, what they saw as an adequate definition of what a space weapon is, and not covering the uh, terrestrial uh, ASAP uh, threat. Um, so that's, and, and then for reasons that sometimes elude me, uh, Moscow and Beijing insisted that this draft treaty could only really be discussed in the Conference on Disarmament, which meant that it was more about uh, for consideration margin. And then the EU had their international code of conduct, which was like the other end of the, of the spectrum and uh, trying to have uh, basically repackaged measures, political measures from other uh, arrangements, uh, though it had some uh, promising features for uh, follow-up, institutional follow-up, the very uh, sort of weak link for the uh, space treaty. Uh, but uh, again, uh, it was poorly handled. Uh, 
its uh, diplomatic rollout was uh, mismanaged. Uh, the EU wanted to keep too tight a control over the uh, consultations about it. And uh, they tried to push it through in a meeting back in July of 2015. Uh, and uh, that came to a real halt as a number of countries, significant space-faring countries too, like Russia, like India, like China, said, uh, you know, we don't like this approach. If you're going to do a code of conduct, it has to be done under UN auspices where everyone would be on an equal footing. Um, and so uh, that got uh, dropped by the EU. I mean, I still see it having some merit. And one of the ideas I've thrown out is it, it's not an EU proprietary uh, uh, initiative. Some other states could pick it up and, and move it into the UN if, uh, and try to get motion there. Um, you know, there have been also suggestions. Canada uh, made a number of suggestions uh, in working papers back in 2007, 2009 about um, unilateral pledges uh, that uh, would uh, be you know, not to uh, put a weapon into space. Uh, uh, not to attack uh, a space object from the ground and not to use uh, a satellite as a weapon against another satellite. And this was seen as in some way uh, to bridge between these two uh, other opposing visions. Um, but it didn't get a, a lot of traction. And frankly, uh, Ottawa didn't really uh, market it very well. And so that too um, it didn't come. Uh, there's been sort of little to point to as, as accomplishments. Uh, I mean, one thing it is that it was a UN group of governmental experts uh, back in uh, 2013. Uh, they were able to agree, because again, this is a consensus requirement on a report uh, enumerating a number of what are called trans transparency and confidence building measures. Uh, and you know, that's still, uh, I think, a, a relevant menu of, of ideas. Uh, but here again, um, there wasn't uh, there wasn't a rapid take up of the recommendations. You know, the next year we had the Crimea uh, annexation and uh, the further deterioration of uh, geopolitical rivalries, great power rivalries. So um, really, uh, things had stayed largely uh, stagnant until this. Um, UK initiative of, of, of uh, last year to uh, suggest that maybe looking at uh, how you could reduce space threats and particularly how you might be able to come to agreement on what constitutes responsible action in outer space. And uh, the flip side of that, what uh, represents irresponsible action and uh, that that could uh, yield uh, some beneficial norms. So, that's the, that's the open ended working group that I referred to earlier. And, uh, we'll see if uh, uh, it runs until um, basically summer of 2023, and we'll see if uh, it is able to come to any uh, agreement of uh, meaningful uh, measures uh, to uh, assist this goal of reducing space threats. Well, hopefully it will. Um, I certainly hope so, and I know that a lot of us kind of need it to. And I think with that, we're going to end our um, our podcast. So it's been great having you, Paul. Um, I hope we can have more conversations in the future. And I hope you have a wonderful day.
Okay, well, uh, I enjoyed our chat, Russell, and uh, thanks for arranging it. And uh, yeah, look forward to uh, better days to come. <laughs> yeah, certainly. Thank you for listening. And thanks again to Paul Meyer for taking the time to talk with Russell. More podcasts are planned as part of this series. You can stay tuned on Youth Fusion social platform or at www.youth-fusion.org where you will also find the written article version of this podcast. This interview made multiple mentions of Assuring Our Common Future, a guide to parliamentary action in support of disarmament for security and sustainable development. This handbook is available as a PDF format at disarmamenthandbook.org. It includes a lot of useful information related to disarmament, whether you're a student, a parliamentarian, an expert, or just interested in hearing what steps are being taken to make our world safer. The handbook includes a section on disarmament in outer space, which will be the topic of discussion for an upcoming webinar organized in partnership with Parliamentarians for Non-Nuclear Proliferation and Disarmament and the Interparliamentary Union. The webinar will take place during the fourth week of September and will gather experts and parliamentarians to discuss effective steps to ensure that outer space remains free of weapons. For more information, please visit the Youth Fusion website or find the event page on pnnd.org or ipu.org to get access to the registration links. You can find more inspiring interview podcasts on Spotify or via the links in the Youth Fusion website. Youth Fusion is a worldwide networking platform for young individuals and organizations in the field of nuclear disarmament, risk reduction, and non-proliferation. We focus on youth action and intergenerational dialogue building on the links between disarmament, peace, climate action, sustainable development, and building back better from the pandemic. Our goals are clear, to inform, educate, connect, and engage our fellow students, activists, and enthusiasts. Through this activity, and as part of the Abolition 2000 network, we're contributing to the total abolition of nuclear weapons. Thank you again for listening.